and uh, this morning's title is <clears throat> Living in Freedom and Power. Living in Freedom <clears throat> and Power. It's a great way to live, free and with power. Um, Christian behavior is what this chapter is all about. It's the main subject. Belief affects behavior. What you think is what you do. And the doctrine of the gospel of grace influences better behavior than the doctrine of mixing law and grace. If you say you believe in the authority of the Bible, then does the Bible impact the way that you live? Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said, You can judge the quality of their faith from the way they behave. Discipline is an index to doctrine. That's important to understand. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 5. And Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So Paul starts out this part of his letter talking about our freedom. Our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Now when a believer starts telling another believer how to live, you know, you, you, uh, you can't wear those pants, you can't wear that shirt, and sister, you can't wear that blouse, and you can't listen to that music, or you can't eat pork, you can't drink coffee, you can't do this, you can't, you know, yeah, you should worship on Sunday, uh, I'm sorry, you should worship on Saturday and so on. You know, then we have legalism. We have legalism. Where's the freedom? Jesus said to those who thought that they were free, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm free to do what I want to do. That doesn't mean I have a license to sin. Freedom is not a license to sin. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. We are free. Paul was writing here mostly to slaves. And most of Paul's converts were slaves. Now, there aren't too many other words that catch our attention like the word free. What? Free? They said it was free? You know, it, it, it wakes us up. You know, it's like the advertising industry, you know, that starts with the word free. Those who are in prison... That word free, hey, it's the best word they could ever hear. Those that are held captives by, uh, captive by drugs or alcohol, you know, when they're free from that addiction, there's nothing better, not a better word around. People are under the control of an oppressive ruler, freedom. Many of them flee their country to flee that oppressive ruler. If there was one thing most of the people in Paul's day wanted, it was to be free. And the children of Israel wanted more than anything else to be free from Egyptian bondage after they had spent many years there. The same desire to be free is the desire of many or of every human being. And Paul made a strong statement when he said here, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Speaking of the law, Paul was writing to people who had been crushed by the Roman government. People who had, been, who had been set spiritually free by Jesus Christ. 
And the word free here has a particular meaning. Free means free from another's control. It means unrestrained. It means uh, to go to pleasure as a citizen, not a slave. And so, a powerful word. The Greeks had a roundabout way of setting a slave free. A god supposedly bought the freed slave. And then the slave provided the money. But, because slaves had no legal standing, he couldn't redeem himself. So his master paid the amount that was required. And then it went into the temple treasure for the slave. Then a document with the words, for freedom, was written. Now, because the slave was the property of a god, nobody could enslave him again. Paul says, you're free. You've been purchased. You are the property of the Son of God, and nobody has the right to enslave you ever again, which was what the legalists were trying to do. They were trying to take away the freedom, their freedom in Christ, by putting them back into the chains of the law with all of their city, uh, silly man-made rules and regulations. Paul said here, notice in verse 1, stand fast, be stationary, persevere, don't move, plant your feet. That's what he's saying when he says stand fast. Now, this would be a picture in the mind of Paul, uh, in the minds of Paul's readers, of how the Roman warrior raised, uh, uh, waged war. When faced by wild, rioting enemy armies, the Romans, they would lock their shields together, they would plant their feet firmly on the ground, and they would charge as a, like a wall of iron, steel, just steadfast. It was a wall of determination. Nobody's getting through. Ephesians 6.15, in the, in the armor that Paul talks about putting on, he said, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, the Roman soldier wore sandals with hobnails in them. They were short nails with large heads in the soles of their, in their sandals. It would give them better footing for the battle. So that's the kind of stand that we have to take when it comes to bad doctrine. We are to stand fast. We can't compromise in a single point. Truth is truth and error is error. And the two ways are always at war. Truth and error are always at war. And we can't compromise a single thing, not a single thing where error is involved. Paul would bend over backwards to make peace with men, but not at the expense of compromise. He would never do that when it came to the truth of God's word. He warned them here, notice, do not be entangled. Don't get all tangled up again in slavery to the law. The legalists were trying to put the heat on uh, the, the people, pressuring them to submit to the law. Paul says, stand fast. Don't give in. Don't move an inch. As he reminds them that Christ has made you free. And how foolish it would be to go back under the old system of the law. A yoke of bondage. Verse 2. He says, Paul says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. He says to them, If you base your salvation on circumcision, then you are removing Christ from your salvation. So Christ won't be of any benefit to you. And it's of no, he's of no effect for you because you haven't gone to him for salvation. Verse 3. 
And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, notice that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Paul says, if you insist that circumcision is necessary to be saved, then you become responsible for keeping the whole law. Every dotting of the I, every crossing of the T, you are to keep that law. The law isn't something that you can pick and choose what you want to do or don't want to do. If you want to be under the law, he's saying you have to observe every single word of the law, not just certain parts of it. This means the need of circumcision for salvation puts a heavy burden on people to keep the whole law because it puts people under the obligation to keep the whole law. Verse 4, he says, You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, there are people who say you can't fall from grace. Paul just said you have fallen from grace. And what Paul has said over and over again, he says again in unmistakable words. Now, in King James Version, it says Christ is become of no effect to you. And this is used for people to be severed from, separated from, discharged from, loosed from anyone to, ter- anyone to terminate all contact with. That's Thayer's Greek definition of no effect, fallen from grace. The word fallen means to fall from a thing. Well, if you're, if you're not in grace, how can you fall from it? You can fall from grace. Again, Thayer's definition. You beca- it becomes inefficient. That grace becomes inefficient when you choose to go back to the law and, and Christ then has no effect. So in a nutshell, this is Paul's case all through his whole argument. All the other points emphasize this. To the Galatians who are, seeking to, to, who are seeking to be or thinking that they're justified by the law, Paul here has a very harsh warning for them. With these individuals, Paul says Jesus has nothing to do with them. Plus, they have lost God's grace. In the strongest language possible, Paul told them the consequences of trying to be justified through the law. Now, here's the important thing to understand when I I said that, that they lost God's grace. They would lose God's grace because Christ would have nothing more to do with them. Now, it's important to see that this loss was due to the fact that they had abandoned God's grace, not because God took it away. The apostasy of turning to the law is fatal. Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. You see, in Galatia... There was the possibility of apostasy. The Galatians had experienced grace and now they were turning from God. And there's a great section on this uh, passage in Galatians uh, in the Beacon's commentary. And I want to share it with you because it explains exactly what's being said here. It says, since New Testament times, it has been beyond comprehension how those who have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the word to come, this is Hebrews 6, 4-5, could return to the old life of sin. It It was beyond comprehension that those who had tasted of the Lord could return to the old life of sin. The commentary says, This question has been so critical that some have developed a theology that denies its possibility. 
They say that any who returned permanently to the life of sin never had found new life in Christ to begin with. And all who have found such life will, ine- will inevitably come back to their father and home. Others more boldly insist that once a man becomes a child of God, his choices and decisions cannot alter this new, de- new relationship. In other words, this, this, this doctrine says that, you know, when you come to Christ, there's nothing that you can do in your life that will change that. You can live like hell, and that won't change your relationship with Christ. But neither scripture nor human experience substantiates that is proved such a teaching. This false theology is built on a minimizing of the power of man's satanic, satanic adversary and on a gross misunderstanding of the power of God. It goes on to say one of the most wonderful truths of the New Testament revelation is the fact of God's self-limitation. In other words, God will not transgress or abuse human freedom. You want to get saved? Fine. You don't want to be saved? That's fine. You want to abandon God? That's what you want to do? That's fine. The same God who will not save a man against his will will not keep a man saved against his will. This is the key to sustaining grace. As long as a soul desires and wills to serve God, he is secure. But when a man chooses to return to the slavery of sin and Satan, God Almighty will respect that decision. Three times in Romans chapter 1, because they did, want, did not want to retain God in their mind, and they chose to do things that were, uh, in, uh, were right in their own eyes, it says God gave them up. Three times, God gave them up. You don't, want, you don't want me in your life. You don't want me to be God. You don't want me to be, you know, the, the head of your life. And you want to do what you want to do. He says, go for it. God gave them up. And that's what it's saying. God says, this is what you want, so be it. I won't hold you against your will. And so, again, as long as a soul desires to... And that's where we, we get the abide doctrine in John 15. Those who abide in him, he will abide in them. But when a man chooses to return to the old life of slavery and sin, God will respect that decision. To be cut off from Christ, in this sense, is to have fallen away from grace. Martin Luther interpreted this expression to mean you are no longer on the, in the realm of grace and illustrated it graphically in the following way from Luther Martin. He said, for just as someone on a ship is drowned, regardless of the part of the ship from which he falls into the sea, so someone who falls away from grace cannot help perishing. The desire to be justified by the law, therefore, is shipwreck. It is exposure to the surest peril of eternal death. What can be more insane and wicked than to want to lose the grace and the favor of God and to retain the law of Moses, whose retention makes it necessary for you to accumulate wrath and every other evil for yourself? Now, if those who seek to be justified on the basis of the moral law fall away from grace, where, I ask, will those fall who, in their self-righteousness, seek to be justified on the basis of their traditions and vows? He said, to the lowest depths of hell. One of the basic rules of hermeneutics, which is interpretation of the Bible, is that the obvious meaning of a passage is probably closest to the true meaning. So you can hardly read Hebrews 6, 4, and 5 without believing that these expressions are describing somebody who has experienced the truth. Hebrews 6, 4, and 5 says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance because there's no more sacrifice for sin. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice of sin. But if you fall away from that, what else is there? The word believe in John 3.16, for those who believe, and in John 6.40, is in the present tense, and it means to believe and continue to believe. It's the continuous, progressive, present, and it, and it implies not only an initial of faith, but a maintained faith, abiding in Christ. Hebrews 10, 26 to 27 says, For if we sin willfully after, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. 1 Peter 1, 5, Peter said, We are kept, you know, it's kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. You see, our part is to believe in Him and His part is to keep us. Verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now here, Paul presents the greatest possible contrast to salvation by works. The we mentioned here, the we speaks of those who have not turned away from Christ compared to the you in verse 4 who have fallen away. Paul emphasizes that he and those following Christ are living through, his, through the Spirit. Circumcision, doc, circumcision doctrine can't make this statement. Salvation by works does not have this kind of hope that can rest in waiting by faith. It must always be working right up to the day they die, trying to do enough good works to gain enough righteousness to be accepted into heaven. But faith has the hope in Jesus Christ who is our righteousness for heaven. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So circumcision or no circumcision has not one bit of effect on our salvation through Jesus Christ. Christ does all the saving and he doesn't need any help from circumcision. And lack of circumcision won't hinder, from it, from, it won't hinder Jesus from saving anyone. Verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul says, man, you are doing so well. You are running the race so well. And then he said, who's, who's held you back from following the truth? Before leaving the subject of the polluting of the gospel message by the legalists, Paul takes one more look at the offenders who have been spreading this corrupt doctrine of mixing law and grace. He said what, what they were doing is totally unacceptable. When a work of God starts to do well, our adversary is happy about it. And, and, and he'll fight it every step of the way. When a church is doing well, the enemy soon shows up to hinder it, to try to stop it. The legalists, those who would mix law and grace in the gospel, they were very antagonistic and they, opposed, they were opposed to obeying the gospel and Christ. Verse 8. 
This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Notice, this, this doctrine, this persuasion, it's not coming from the Lord. The doctrine of law mixed with grace in the gospel doesn't come from God. It was a man-made doctrine that you liked. It appealed to your flesh. But it didn't have God's authority or backing. Verse 9. And Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven or yeast, it's very aggressive. And it doesn't take long to spread through the whole lump of dough. Sin and error does the same thing. And in the Old Testament, uh, leaven is, uh, is uh, compared to sin. Because it spreads and it corrupts quickly. So, sin and error, again, does the same thing as leaven. The legalists were teaching doctrinal error, type of leaven... And if it, was a, it wasn't attacked strongly, then it would was, it was soon corrupt everything. It was spread everywhere. Verse 10. Paul says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Paul also had powers of persuasion. He had the confidence in his converts that they will have no other mind than what Paul taught them. Paul hopes that when they get this letter... His letter, they wouldn't think any differently than he does. He said he was, he was confident that the Galatians would judge the teaching of the legalists as wrong, as error and nothing else. And those who oppose the gospel and teach spiritual error, sooner or later they're going to experience the judgment of God. Today's apostates, they are in for a divine judgment, not divine blessing. So the same goes for those who encourage compromise in Christian convictions that leads to worldliness. Verse 11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, then why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So he says, he, he says dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you must be circumcised, as some say I do, then why am I still being persecuted? He says, if I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, nobody would be offended. So the people teaching false doctrine persecuted Paul because he preached a message that left out circumcision from salvation. The cross is offensive. It's offensive to those who want to include circumcision or other kinds of works as part of salvation. Because the cross says Christ provides all the, the salvation that's necessary for a man's soul. Everything about the cross disgusted the Jews. Because you see, he was born poor. He was born lowly. He was born in a stable surrounded by animals. His life and his teaching was totally theirs. That's why the cross disgusted the Jews. He wouldn't pay any respect to their rabbi's rules and regulations. Jesus openly denied honoring their man-made Sabbath. They couldn't deny his miracles. And they gave Satan credit for what he did for his miracles. They always argued with him. That is Jesus. They always argue with Jesus about the law and about Moses and about the commandments. They hated Jesus because he wouldn't approve and support their traditions. They were annoyed with Jesus because he would hang out with publicans and sinners. 
he'd hang out with what the town would call the riffraff, the lowlifes. They wanted a, the, the, the legalists, they wanted a take charge, or the Jews wanted a take charge kind of Messiah. They wanted one that, was gonna, that wasn't uh, uh, meek, but was going to go out. They wanted somebody who was going to go out and, and take down the Roman government. And more than anything else, they, uh, they were offended by the cross. The cross. That someone who said he was their Messiah would be, would be treated the way that he was and to eventually end up crucified. That was the last thing that they expected. That's, what, that's why the Jews couldn't... He was a stumbling block to them. He, they couldn't handle a Messiah that was treated the way that he was treated. And, and that would eventually be killed, murdered, and crucified upon the cross. Last thing they expected. The cross was, was nonsense to them. It was an offense to the Jews. And yet Paul knew the preaching of the cross was the message for the lost world. It's what they needed to hear. There was power in the preaching of the cross. There was healing in the cross. There was hope in the cross. There was salvation in the cross. And the people did not need anything other than Jesus. They didn't need any law. Plus Jesus. They just needed Christ. The gospel could convict. The gospel gospel could bring confession. The gospel could bring conversion to the spiritually dead human heart. No other message could do that. And the cross still offends today. If the Galatians thought they could lessen their own sufferings by being circumcised, they were dead wrong. All that they would get in return for that ritual would be the gloom of spiritual death to their souls. Verse 12. Paul says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, the words cut off means to amputate. It's the same word that Peter used when, when Malchus's ear was cut off. The Judaizers wanted Paul's converts to be circumcised, to submit to this minor amputation to improve their religious standing. Paul says uh, sarcastically here, what they need to do is go all the way and castrate themselves. That they should make themselves eunuchs. Because that would put an end to their destructive teaching because then, according to the law itself, they would be cut off from the assembly of the Lord. What the Judaizers were trying to do was to cut off the Gentile believers from the body of Christ. So it's no surprise Paul doesn't hesitate to speak his mind. Paul, man, Paul was like a ferocious mother. Speaking about mothers, he was like a ferocious mother lion protecting her cubs when it comes to protecting his converts from destructive doctrine. Verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through, but through love serve one another. Paul says, we are free. And the law doesn't have a hold on us, but love does. He's saying, even though we're free, we can't do certain things. Because love for the Lord will make us draw the line for, uh, line for ourselves when it comes to certain things. And see, even though Paul said we're free because of our love for Jesus Christ, we don't do certain things. There's a law that we draw because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. 
He says, that's not for us to do, or that's what we should do. You see, love for others will ensure that, the, that other things are just as impossible. We're not free to cross certain boundaries. We're not free to indulge in carnality, to indulge our flesh. We're not free to abuse our freedom, to indulge the flesh. And, and you know, that, that wouldn't be really freedom. That would be a license. In other words, people will look at freedom as a license to do anything that I want to do, and it doesn't matter. That's not what Paul's teaching. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, we're not free to sin. We're free from sin. He said, we're no longer dead in sin, we're dead to sin. He says, and we're saved from our sins, not in our sins. Jews were in bondage to the law. Gentiles were in bondage to idols. And all of us are in bondage to sin. But the Lord sets us free at the infinite cost of Calvary. And we should be so thankful. And we should acknowledge the, the, the limitless death, death uh, debt that we owe Jesus. And how ungrateful it is to use our new found freedom as an excuse to, to do what we want. An excuse for self-indulgence. That is not what our freedom in Christ is. We're not to use our freedom for an opportunity for the flesh, Paul said. Privilege brings responsibility. Blessings can be perverted and used to promote sin rather than consecration. We're not to pamper the flesh. We're not to feed the flesh. We're not to cater to the flesh. We're not to exalt the flesh. Jesus said we are to kill the flesh. Kill the flesh. Sin cannot be suppressed. It cannot be restrained. It cannot be controlled. It has to be crucified. Crucified. Killed. The freedom that salvation gives from the law shouldn't be perverted. Made into an excuse to sin. Freedom gives us the chance to help other people. But it can also be used selfishly to serve ourselves. But you see, love takes the selfishness out of, of a person. And that love helps that person to focus on other people. The word serve here means to be a slave. What does a slave do? All they do is serve other people. That's Paul's view of the Christian life in a nutshell. We are saved to serve Jesus didn't save us to sit. He saved us to serve. And, he gave G and Jesus gave us the example. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Our love for Jesus Christ should be, a, the, it should be the driving force to, uh, 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 to, to pattern ourselves after. And he was the best example. Jesus Christ. Freedom brings with it the duty to serve. Verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The gospel provides love that fulfills the law. The gospel does better than the law. It's superior to the law. Nobody could fulfill the law except Jesus Christ. 
until the gospel came. And as, when the gospel came, now everybody had that ability to fulfill that love. So the whole law, with all of its requirements, is fulfilled through the love of God in Christ, as it's, exper- as it's expressed in the believer's life. And the ma- amazing thing about love is that it takes the place of all the laws God ever gave. When he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that, that would solve every problem that we see today in human relationships. Because if you truly love people as Christ calls us to, and, and, and as we have the ability to, if you truly love people because you love Jesus Christ, you won't steal from them, you won't lie about them, you won't envy them, you won't try in any way to hurt them. You'll love them. And the, the love that the Bible talks about is doing what's best for the other person. And that's what Christ always does. He does what's best for the other person. Love in the heart is God's substitute for laws and threats. Let's close now with verse 15. He says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Paul finishes by saying, Where love is not, or where love is lacking... There's going to be problems. And Paul mentions these problems. And the verse here, this verse here, it suggests that these problems were taking place where the legalists had been teaching their error of mixing law and grace. The Galatian churches seemed to have been only, uh, they had not only been uh, facing the attempting error from the outside, but they're also being torn apart from the inside. The Galatian church was being tempted from these false teachers on the outside with, with, with error, but they're also facing the, the threat of being torn apart from the inside because of the error, because of the, the arguing. The believers were quarreling with each other, probably over the whole subject of keeping the law and grace. And this was one of the sad results of the Judaizers' teaching. And the thing is, see, if Paul didn't deal with it like he's doing here in Galatians... If he didn't deal with it and take care of it, it could destroy the church. It could destroy the fellowship. Fighting is no way to deal with error. And Satan would, he loves it when he sees us fight. Satan would win if the church split into different, two different warring parties. Paul uses very clear language here to describe their behavior as a pack of wild animals tearing and devouring one another. And a lot of, you know, and all over, churches all over go home from the Sunday morning service with, through making unloving comments about somebody in the church. They rip their pastor. They rip somebody that, that they know. They rip the staff, a teacher. But we need to beware. As Paul said here, verse 15, you reap what you sow. If you bite, he says, says, and you devour others, you'll experience the same. Because unjust criticism brings unjust criticism. And it's sad to say. You know, the world just walks by the church today. 
Think of how many people live in this neighborhood right here, church right in the center of it. And you know we're here. They just walk by it like it doesn't exist. Even though there, there are a lot of good people in churches and many good preachers and teachers in churches and, and many good teachers in our churches. But because of the lives of some Christians is what keeps the world away from many churches. Because in too many churches, there are Christians who have no love for each other. As Paul was talking about, that love does best with others. But there's too many where the Christians have no love for each other and they gossip, they hold grudges. They have no love for each other. They have their little groups, their little cliques. They can't get along. And it's really a sad and terrible thing. And I'm sure that it breaks our Heavenly Father's heart. Lord, we come before you this morning and I pray. We pray, God. The Lord, this is a, a great and powerful chapter, Lord. And Father, help us to, Lord, to abide by your word, Lord. Father, when we hear things that are maybe tempting to believe in, let us check the scriptures, Lord. Let's be like the Bereans who would hear the word, but they'd check it. They'd check it out every day to see if it was true or not, God. Let us be like the Bereans. Let us run everything that we hear through the word of God to find out if it's right or wrong, true or false, God. So, Lord, let us not just take things that we like to hear and, and sound good, but, Father, things that are right, things that are holy, things that will glorify you, God. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. As always, we thank you for how you take care of us, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you that, um, God, you saved us and that you left us this beautiful book, God, that we call the Bible. And we just thank you that, Lord, that you're in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well,